Good morning. It's good to be together. It is so important for us to be in community. Um, we're going we're gonna to see that in the passage we look at this morning. We're going back to 1 Corinthians 15. And I, I have been learning so much and I've been so encouraged by this. Um, it's about the gospel. And that is at the core of our faith. And there is so much that Paul weaves into this chapter that deals with um, how we should look and how we should see life. So uh, let me remind you of where we left off last time. So we ended with this section where it said, For he, and that's Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So that's where we left, that's where we left off. And if you remember, we've been talking about how the gospel is good news. It's news about something that's happened that has changed the world. And then we talked about how Paul says that that news is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again. He was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And that phrase, according to the scriptures, means this is all a part of God's plan. And then he gets into this discussion of resurrection. And people were confused about that. And he's fighting a culture that doesn't think a physical resurrection would be a good thing. That just seems strange to them. So he's trying to explain that, that this is essential. This is a part of God's plan. And all along, we have to be remembering that God has a plan, that he is working and unfolding. And the resurrection is right at the center of that. It's huge. It's so, so important. And it shows that God is at work on our planet, like he's involved. Too many times we think like that God kind of had a plan B and a plan C and you know, like he, he, we, we, we stifle his purposes somehow, and then he goes on to something else. And that's not the right way to look at it. And Paul's saying that, and he gets to this place where he raises this statement that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And if you were here that Sunday, you know I used the illustration from the three ways that a chess game can end. I read about this. I thought this was a great illustration that, you know, somebody could get checkmate. Somebody could, they could agree to a draw. The players, you know, would have depleted their pieces so much that nobody can win. Or somebody gets mad and flips the board over. And the thought is that God gets mad and flips the board over. And that's not the case. So Jesus is reigning until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, when I was talking about that, I, I made this comment that evil burns itself out. And that was not the best way to say that because it makes you think, okay, we're, the world's just going to get better and better and better and, you know, evil dies and, you know, then Jesus comes back. And that's not what I was meaning to say. But my point was that evil doesn't do any good. It doesn't create anything positive. And it it, destroy, it it feeds in, it destroys on itself. So if you think about the world's civilizations that have been massive and important and powerful, they all decay. And 
evil will continue until Jesus comes back, until it's done its worst. The enemy isn't giving up and is doing everything he can, but he doesn't win. And ultimately, it fails. So Jesus is reigning until this happens. So that's where, we're, that's where we left off. That Paul is explaining the gospel. It's about these events that have happened. He's explaining that we do have a physical resurrection ahead of us. That's in our future. Jesus was physically raised from the dead, and he is actively working in our world. God hasn't abandoned the project. It's all unfolding according to the plan. And that's why confidence and faith in the resurrection is so important, because it's a miracle. And we are so... We, we, um, we know we're on track. Okay, so that's where we left off. So let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us, and we'll, we'll look at the next section. Just ask the Lord to clear your mind, help you see the word this morning, and then I'll pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that you have a plan and are working it. We sang earlier about the throne. And Lord, you reign. And you are accomplishing your purposes. And we are a part of that. So as we read this next section in 1 Corinthians 15, as we, as we think about it, would you guide our thoughts and help us grow in our confidence in you, and see more clearly what you are calling each of us to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the next verse continues this thought, and it says this, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. There's a lot of pronouns there. It's like, who are the hymns in the he's and the what's in this? So, you notice that this is in all capitals. This is the New American Standard Version, and so it will do that when it's a quotation. And this is a quotation from Psalm 8. So he says, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So if you go to Psalm 8, you'll read this. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, what is that reference? It goes all the way back to creation, right? So creation is, as, as you read about creation in Genesis 1, it culminates with God making man. And he says here, here he makes, makes people in his image, and he says here, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. And he just says here, I want, he puts it all under us. And so we have been given this authority, this responsibility to care for creation. And Paul uses that of Jesus as this part of this design. So what, just, just, just let your mind go thinking through this. So what do we know about who Jesus is? He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God, right? But what else is he? He's man, right? He's human. He put on humanity. He is both. And so as Jesus, we go back to his, he sees that when he has, says all things are 
Um, he's putting all things, this, this connects the dots of creation and humanity with Jesus. So Jesus not only shows us what God is like, he shows us how as humans we can submit to the Father. He's modeling for us this kind of relationship of honoring his Father and doing what the Father asks of him. So he puts all things in subjection under his feet, and then, <coughs> excuse me, when he says he, he says all things are in subjection, it's evident he is accepted, meaning God the Father is accepted. So Jesus is still in submission to the Father in that sense, but um, everything, and then so it, it continues, and then when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Okay, that's a mouthful. But the point is, Jesus wins. And he's defeating all the enemies of darkness so that everything can be submitted to the Father in he himself, and then God is over all. The point in this is God has this plan that is unfolding, and it's under progress. It's, it's moving forward. It's happening. It's unfolding, and Jesus is at the core of it. What Jesus has done on the cross, what Jesus has done in rising from the dead, it's all happening. So this continues with that thought that Jesus is at work. Now, where do we come in? So Jesus is reigning. What does that actually mean? How does that work? Where, where do you and I fit in? So let's go forward a little bit. So Paul, remember, is fighting this, this, this thought that's common in the culture of the day is, well, who would want to be raised from the dead? Like a body, who would want that? That's a bad idea. So he goes back to that, kind of helping them think this through and defeat that, and he says this, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why were they baptized for them? So he's going back to that argument. And so here's the question, what does baptize for the dead mean? Well, if you look at any of the commentaries, you'll see you've got two courses of action here. Either one is to try to make it say something other than what will those do who are baptized for the dead. They try to, they try to twist the language so they say, well, maybe, you know, like we're all dead spiritually and then we get baptized. You know, they try to make it something that we could agree with. The Greek doesn't, you really have to do injustice to the original language to make it say any. This is a good translation is what I'm trying to say. Like, so what does that mean? Well, notice how Paul says, what will those do? Not we. He's not, he's not saying this is a good practice. What he's saying is people obviously believe there is something more because they go to the lengths of being baptized for dead people out of concern for them. Either they were not believers, or maybe they had, gotten, they had become believers and didn't get baptized, but there are people out there doing that. He's not commending the practice. He's not saying you should do this. He's just illustrating the belief in life after death. So let me give you another way of thinking about this. If you've ever read about Egypt, what do they do? What do they find in Egypt? They find these tombs. And what are in these tombs? All kinds of wealth and all kinds of things and provisions. Why did they do that? Because they believed in an afterlife. So you could say 
that all of that gives evidence that that people believed in an afterlife, right? But you wouldn't, you could say that it shows that they believed it without recommending it as a practice. Like we should all be building big tombs for ourselves and putting stuff in it. So what Paul is saying here is he's he's using this as an expression of look, people have this understanding and, and they're actually acting on it. So why are are why are you thinking along these lines of the dead aren't raised? And then he goes one more in terms of this is what believers are doing and this is how believers are living. He says, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If you read the book of Acts and you think through all the ways that Paul suffered how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was beaten, how many times he was stoned, you can understand this. And then he says, if for human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Okay, so what does that mean? He talks about these, these strange things here. So if you read the book of Acts, you know that he was in Ephesus, and there was, remember that big, that big theater there, and they were shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, Ephesians and all that kind of stuff. There was a lot going on there, and he um, he struggled and wanted to help that church, and he fought um, bad ideas there. But there's no story of him being in the arena and fighting the beasts. Like if you got thrown to the animals, you didn't win. Like nobody kind of came out of that as victorious. So I, this, I think, the best way to understand that is this is kind of a picture of the struggle, like he's using the metaphor of fighting wild beasts for kind of the, the difficulty he had in, in the ministry. And, and if the dead aren't raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So one of the things that Christians are sometimes accused of is believing a message that's not true that the people who taught it made it up. Like they, they hid it. They pretended that Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't actually rise from the dead. And this was all fake. Like it was all made up. And the big secret is, no, it's not true. Well, why would you do that? Why would you die for something that you knew wasn't true? That's what Paul is saying here. If, if the dead aren't raised, why would we be doing any of this? If you were proclaiming a message that you were beaten, being beaten for, and you knew for a fact that the message wasn't true, why, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And so then he goes, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That goes back to that whole idea of life is short, so let's do what we want. Let's, let's grab for all the gusto we can because tomorrow we're gone and we exist no more. So let's just go for it. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So he switches a little bit here, and he's, 
he's talking about how this idea that there is no resurrection or how this idea that life is short, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, can corrupt us. And it doesn't do it just because of the idea. It does it because of the community that you keep. Community is important. I want you to think about the power of these kinds of pronouns. Us and them. So what do you do for us? And what do you do about them? Your character is shaped by who you identify with as my people, our people. And that is powerful beyond rational thought. So when I was raised, there were times when my parents said something like this to me. They said, we don't do that in this family. Have you ever heard that phrase? We don't, we don't act like that in this family. They were teaching me family culture, and it shapes your culture. It shapes your mentality. So there is a way in which we become like the people we hang out with. When I was uh, going to school, when I w- went away for college, I had an aunt who was... Uh, visiting us at the time and she she warned me because we had there had been some family members some cousins that had gone to school and had walked away from their faith and she didn't want me to do that and so she was warning me about that and um, it's interesting because the it came the topic um, that was at the core of that for some of these was the study of philosophy so if you know J.P. Moreland, he, um, he's an author and an apologist, and he was a part of Starting Grace. Um, he was here at the very beginning, so we're friends. And we had a conversation about that and a couple of times. And sometimes when people go into advanced studies, they have walked away from their faith. But as he and I talked, he said, seldom is that because they got talked out of the ideas, like they were persuaded to think differently. Rarely is that the situation. Normally what it is, is that they are socialized out of their thinking. So this is what happens. You start studying in a field and you've got questions. You're wrestling with some ideas and there's no one you can talk to about it. And sometimes the church is guilty of talking to someone about difficult ideas and not knowing what to say. So they say, well, just shut up and, and trust rather than think. And, they, that, and they, they go to school and they can talk about the ideas there and they're essentially socialized into a whole different way of thinking. This statement is very powerful for us to think about. Because people that we know that may be struggling, community becomes very important. And how we think in terms of how we spend time with people, Jesus didn't, like, the application of this is cut out every unbeliever in your life. 
that's not the application from this. It's to understand the need to be with other believers and to be with like-minded people, but also the power of that community to help people grasp the truth. Some of the ways that we understand about the goodness of God, some of the ways we understand about the riches of Christ is not because we have ideas in our head, but because we taste it in the relationships of the people that we are with. We see love in action. We see kindness in behavior. And we are affected by the communities that we are connected to. So when Paul says, don't be conceived, bad company corrupts good morals, he's telling us how it's important who the us in our life are, who the my people are. And that's why we need community. That's why we have small groups here. That's why we have life groups here. That's why we want you to be a part of other people's lives. We need each other. And that's why he says this, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So going back to how Jesus reigns, we are a part of that. Because if you think about the last instructions that he gave to his disciples, it was what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. How is Jesus winning and reigning? We are in the process of making disciples of the nations. In our lifetime, there are fewer unreached people than there were. The numbers of unreached people have been reduced. The gospel has gone to places that it has not yet in prison. And you and I are a part of that. When he tells us to be sober-minded and stop sinning, this is not a legalistic kind of like, oh, you got to earn your salvation kind of thing. It's stop allowing the world to squeeze you into its mold and start living in a way that demonstrates the goodness of God. He is inviting us into community with other believers and into community with God. When we taste the goodness of God, we're not tempted by the by the the, the junk of the world. I don't know if you've ever um, if you ever with I'm trying to think of an ex- the best example with food. Like you know how sweet oranges are and how good they taste. But have you ever tasted it after having like a a really sugary cookie? Do you know the difference? When you taste stuff that tastes good, it can, you know, like sugar kind of stuff, it ruins your taste sometimes or doesn't let you appreciate, you don't see the difference until you've been off of it for a while. And when you have been off of it for a while, and you see, this doesn't taste good anymore. And that's part of our problem. When, when he says this, he's saying, wake up and realize that the world around you is going to squeeze you. Stop living that way so that you can see the goodness of God and you can demonstrate it in the way you live. I speak this to your shame. We're not intimate with the Father. We're not intimate with Jesus. And so because of that, we are attracted to the things that don't matter. Wow. 
here's my point. We must not forget that Jesus is reigning now. God, ha- God is not thwarted in his plans. He's not on plan Z because he's tried all these other things and they didn't work. The scriptures tell us that God is in charge and things are unfolding. All of the things that have unfolded in the past and that are moving forward are all going according to God's design. And all it's not going to end until everything is in submission. Without the resurrection, the life of a disciple makes no sense. If we just die and go out of existence, why wouldn't we just eat, drink, and be merry? Because tomorrow we die. But we don't have short lives. We have long lives. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal future. And part of what we do now matters, both in terms of who we are for all eternity and in who we are in terms of bringing people to be a part of what God is doing. And the third thing is community matters, who you are connected with. And I think we all understand that with a good deal of clarity given what we've been through in the last year. We've missed being with each other. We've missed the community of being able to be present with one another. And that makes this all the more important because how are we going to help people not only stay solid, but how are we going to help people find Jesus if we aren't the kinds of communities that model what he's like? Okay, I'm sorry that this has been all over the map this morning, but that was the section in front of us. It was all over the map this morning. But I hope it encourages you that God is at work. He has a plan, and it's unfolding. And you and I get to join him in that. And part of how we do that is by the communities that we create and are a part of. And that's why we as a church are so important. And how we treat and love one another is so important because it's a part of creating that culture of heaven right now. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you are at work in our world. Thank you for Jesus, that he has won the victory and that is even now reigning and working to bring things to that ultimate fruition when everything is in submission to you. May we join him in his work. Show us each of our tasks, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.